This episode originally aired as a part of my other podcast, Project Shadow. Over there, I have been doing world-building content for a while, and I'm currently moving it all over to this new podcast. New episodes will be appearing soon. I am currently making all of my old content, including Worldbuilding 101 and Worldbuilding 201, available on this podcast as Season 1 and Season 2 of Mythweaving. I hope you enjoy, and don't forget to have the fun. Today we're going to talk about the last two codes in Roland Barth's idea of how a story is read, in order to help us understand the elements we need to make sure to include in our world building when we're creating a story world. I am doing both of these together because I feel like, one, to me, in my own mind, they're very related to each other, and two, I think it would be overkill to give them an episode to themselves, because it would just be me repeating over and over and over again, it's variable, it's variable, it's variable. So today, we're going to talk about the cultural and the symbolic codes on this episode of Project Shadow. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name's Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and today is going to be the last episode in our world-building project for just a little bit. We've been talking about world-building a lot, and I've given you a lot to think about and to chew on, so I'm going to take the next set of episodes to do something a little bit different for a little bit, and then we're going to come back with a vengeance, because Trust me, we're not done. We're not done. But given everything that's going on right now, I I, I, I want to talk about something else for just a few episodes. All right? If I sound weird today, I apologize. Today was the first day where I had to uh, start canceling things, services that I tend to rely on to get my work done because, you know, craziness in the world. So I, I'm a little bit bummed. <laughs> I'm fine, but I, I'm just a little bit bummed. Money is uh, money. And I know a lot of us are going through it. It's just, you know, I knew I would eventually have to do it, but today was the day that I had to actually start doing it. So yeah. Anywho, <clears throat> on with the show. Oh man. So the... The cultural code is the most variable one of them all, and it will come into play in multiple different ways in your telling of the story. Now, the cultural code is relying on your reader's understanding of culture to infer things in your setting. This is not the culture of the people in your setting. This is not the culture of the various populations that you're writing about. This is our real-world culture. So, for example, when I write my um, Dragons of Night stories, I pull very heavily on Greco-Roman and Celtic mythology and some Germanic and Norse mythology for those settings. 
I allow that to do quite a bit of heavy lifting. That if I mention Titania, while I will do some character work and stuff, I'm not, <laughs> you don't, don't use this to be lazy. I do kind of expect people to start putting things together and think about Titania and Oberon and Puck and A Midsummer Night's Dream, because that's the culture that we live in. And those are characters from Shakespeare. When I make references to various Celtic myths or to various Greek, Roman, or Norse myths, I do have a certain expectation that the readers are going to be bringing some baggage with them. And that's where you get to have fun, because sometimes I am specifically trying to subvert their ideas and expectations when they hear those names, and other times when it's a simple reference, more or less trying to just rely on that cultural osmosis that we go through to understand who these characters are. You will not be able to control the cultural code. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I'm not going to spend too much time on it. You don't know what preconceived notions your audience is bringing to the work, and that's what will in bring, bring references that you may not be expecting. This is why for, for the many people who remember older versions of Return of the Jedi, you remember the Ewoks singing a particular song during the celebration that is no longer there. Because unbeknownst to the creators at the time, especially as Star Wars, Star Wars was becoming a global phenomenon at that point, and nowhere near the point that it is now, they didn't realize that some of the, what were thought of as nonsense words that the Ewoks were singing were very dirty and offensive in other languages. And you can't help that people are going to bring that in. And it was decided that that song would be redone in a way that wouldn't be as offensive to people who speak those languages. I have found this out for myself when I have made use of several Ozarkian and Southern colloquialisms. I am a Missourian by birth, and I tend to have some of those phrases in my back pocket that I have learned that speakers of English in other countries Oh, you use those words very, very differently. And I was saying some very offensive things to people in other countries that in my country would have just been lighthearted banter. So I have tried to be compassionate and learn those phrases to the best of my ability so that I don't accidentally misuse them and accidentally do X-rated content when I'm trying to do more all ages content. And that's kind of the problem that you're going to have when you're dealing with the cultural code. You don't know what you don't know. And so you're not going to be able to manage this as well as you think. Now, this code, more than any of the others, has kind of become the lingua franca of the modern world. <sighs> Stranger Things, they, they base most of their world building and a lot of their character work 
out of this idea of nostalgia and pulling on those cultural touchstones to bring the audience into the story and into the world. They rely on a lot of those cultural references right from the first shot where we see the boys playing D&D in the basement all the way through. They they really rely on that to convey a lot of the more subtle ideas that they're trying to get across. And I say subtle and I pause because the Duffers are... (laughs) are fun storytellers, but it is kind of heavy-handed in some ways and super subtle in others. Your mileage may vary. But you see this all the time in a lot of the newer nostalgia media that's been coming out. I'm not the biggest fan of doing that work because if you're spending too much time trying to be referential, if you're spending too much time just trying to hit those cultural references that you think need to be pulled into your story to be hip and cool, like uh, let's just say a certain scene in Black Panther regarding a pair of shoes. It, it can seem odd and a bit out of place. You know, the, the odd references to the dabbing and the flossing and you know what I'm talking about. It Use this ingredient sparingly. It can really feel like you're trying trying way too hard. If you don't understand that, try to watch a modern film that takes place in the 80s and see exactly how often, just to try to get that across, they have characters going like totally tubular and everybody's talking in like a valley girl accent and all of that, when that is unnecessary and <laughs> really heavy-handed. Yeah, it doesn't always work. Not everybody in the 90s was a grunge kid. I was a goth in the 90s. And so, but that doesn't mean that I don't know who Kurt Cobain is. And I didn't, not that, and it doesn't mean that I didn't listen to his music. I was just listening more to like Switchblade Symphony and Christian Death than I was to the others. Typo negative, especially. I was really into typo negative. So be careful, be mindful with your cultural references. One, if, if they're not as perennial as you think they are, they will make the work feel extremely dated very quickly. And I mean very quickly because the memes that are unfortunately being incorporated into some films are in one day and out the next. And by the time the film actually gets made, ooh, they feel dated. <laughs> they feel really dated. So don't rely on this too heavily, but know that it is there, and kind of do some cursory work. You should also understand that this is how people are going to experience the genre that you tell people, tell them that the work is. So if you say that it is going to be in a particular genre, they will bring certain cultural expectations with them to that genre that you must then either subvert or utilize. And yeah, just be warned. People will bring themselves to the text. There's nothing you can do about that. You should just be ready for it and try not to overly pander to what you want them to bring to the text. The symbolic code, on the other hand, is something that you have a lot of control over, but again, be very careful how you use it. The symbolic code creates meaning in the text 
through the arrangement of the elements that we created in our character code. How do the groups oppose each other? How are they in conflict? How are they the same? These themes, crucibles, conflicts of the story all come together and turn certain things into marks, signs, signifiers that carry with them a deeper meaning than they would ordinarily have if they were all by themselves. Do not think of the symbolic code merely as the place where you create symbols. It's so much more than that. And it's also how you properly create a symbol. Because a symbol is only a symbol if it is empowered through the story. So I can tell you that a heart is a symbol of love. And we as a culture look at a heart and we see it as a symbol of love. That's the cultural code. That is not the symbolic code. If I want a heart in my story to be symbolic of love, maybe I show my two characters sitting side by side with a pen in each hand and each one draws half of a heart. And it means something. It's a symbol of connection. Maybe they have those heart necklaces that break into two halves and they each wear one. That gives a connection between the characters. And now in my story, the heart has that meaning. Or maybe it's a certain way somebody dots their eyes, or maybe it's a way that a certain person always signs their letters back and forth. If I do not give that symbol a meaning in my story through how it is used in connecting my characters, my places, my groups, my nations together, then it's purely cultural and I have to rely on the previous code, the cultural code, and how people perceive that symbol in my story. So if I say I have a white rose in the story, right? Maybe people bring a sense of pure love from the cultural code into the story. But I am wanting to make a reference to, say, the Phantom of the Opera. And so I have this rose mysteriously appearing every day on somebody's desk, every day with a little note of inspiration, a little something else there. Now that white rose is taking on the symbolic meaning of this relationship, this unseen relationship. Why is the rose being sent there, set there? Who is setting it there? Why are they doing it? What does it mean? All of those new questions start coming about. How do the characters fit together? What are the motifs that fill the story? What symbols are in the world and how are they used? How are the themes going to be explored in the narrative? These are all the ways that we turn a cultural symbol into a symbol for our stories. See, the Holy Grail, for example, has a lot of meanings. It has a lot of meanings. In my first books, Liquid Sky, I actually took a version of the Holy Grail story, and the Holy Grail, or the Tosa, is symbolic of a shared cultural legacy. It is the power to create 
and destroy through tales. And the stories that are told using it have the power to change everything. And so, the story gives meaning to the symbol. The story gives purpose to this symbol. It is not merely a MacGuffin that the characters are after. It is a tool. It is something that has power and weight within the story itself. Remember, as we've discussed several times, the difference between a symbol and a MacGuffin is a MacGuffin is something only the characters care about. If you're searching for those magic stones in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the other characters in the story are the only people who care about those stones. If you're trying to... <sighs> I'm not going to go through a series of MacGuffins. We, we, I think everybody knows what a MacGuffin is. I'm going to stop myself. As for, and recognizes it when you see it. Something that is not a MacGuffin is something that actually impacts and affects the world. The One Ring, and I always go back to this because it's the best example of how something is not a MacGuffin. The One Ring in The Lord of the Rings is not something only the characters care about. It is a character in and of itself, especially if you've read the books. It gives characters wants, desires, it preys on them. It has intention, motive. It finds ways to move them into places that they will find most advantageous. It whispers dark whispers into their ears and makes them think things that they never would think before. It brings out the darker, more sinister aspects of their personality and causes them to not want to let it go. It has an addictive quality. It controls them. It owns them. And it wants to dominate everything. And it wants to return to its master. It is as much a character in Lord of the Rings as Frodo or Sam or Gollum. It is not a MacGuffin. If it were a MacGuffin, it wouldn't have any of those powers. It would simply be that thing. And in many a Lord of the Rings knockoff, we've seen exactly that. Where, oh, we have this super amazing powerful thing that can destroy the universe. The uh, Infinity Stones. <laughs> Well, in many of the movies, they actually function in a way that makes them more than a mere MacGuffin. By the time you get to Endgame, the Infinity Stones are the MacGuffin. They have fully taken on their MacGuffin nature, in that they're something all of the characters care about. And while, yes, they do have the power to do things, and yes, they do are used as a tool throughout the story which prevents them from fully sliding into MacGuffin nature and territory. They, they don't have any personality. They don't have any meaning beyond what they are. They are absolute power. And as absolute power, they function as a means of creation and destruction of hope and fear. But let's be honest. The real story has of Endgame has little to do with the Infinity Stones themselves. They're a set dressing. You don't want your things to be set dressings unless they have to be. If you can invest them with meaning, if they can, you can invest them with personality, do so. Remember, when we're talking about symbolism, it's all about how we arrange our characters. When I say a stag is 
attacked by a wolf or a wolf is killed by a stag. If you're a fan of the Game of Thrones TV series or the works of George R. R. Martin, you probably immediately thought of two noble houses and the events that transpire between them. And rightly, you should. This is a symbol that is given meaning through the actions of the characters, through the actions of the world and the relationships that impart that meaning to it. And that's what you want to accomplish in your story. And that's all a symbol really is, is something that takes on meaning because it functions as the means of the relationship between two other things. It's a mediator. I hope that all made sense. <laughs> I really do. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed on the show, down in the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean. I would love to hear from you. If you'd rather hit me up on social media, I am CE Dorset on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can find links to everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. All right, like I said, today's going to be the last of the world building episodes for just a little bit because I want to play around with a few other ideas on the show. I want to have some fun, bring some variety in, <laughs> mainly for myself, but hopefully there'll be stuff that you all will enjoy as well. I hate to say this given the times that we live in, but if you have any money that you can pass my way down in the show notes, you'll find a link to both listener support and my Patreon. Thank you to everybody who does that. It helps out so much more than you know. If you don't have any money right now or you don't feel like giving, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I, I really, truly, truly understand that. But if you know anybody that you think would like any of the things that I do, please share it with them. That helps out more than you know. Alrighty, we are getting close to the thousandth episode. I'm very excited. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, and don't forget to have the fun. Bye.